Hello, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends, which is now in its second century of episodes. As I was thinking the other day about this episode, it occurs to me that one of the most, if not the most successful, text of investigative journalism, or expose journalism, or watchdog journalism, was Procopius' Secret History. We don't think of the text, obviously, that way, but if something like that were to be published today, with the intention that that text had, that is pretty much how it would scan. And it's important to understand the enormous impact it had on Justinian's reputation, on the way in which his regime was understood. So down to that point in European thought, Justinian was almost an abstraction. He was like an ideal legislator. He was the codifier of Roman law. That's how he was understood. Like he was on a par with Solomon, almost not like a real person necessarily as the embodiment of the Roman legislator. And then this text was found in the early 17th century, and it just tore that image apart. And Procopius hit Justinian right where it hurt. (laughs) Especially his reputation as a lawgiver, uh, because Procopius exposed or claimed to expose all of the ways in which Justinian manipulated the law for corrupt purposes. And Justinian has never recovered from that. The two men, Procopius and Justinian, are like tangled in this, you know, dance of death that they can't get out of ever since then. Like every book on Justinian is a book on Procopius. Every book on Procopius is a book on Justinian. Now I should add that Justinian's reputation suffered even more blows afterwards. So especially during the um, Enlightenment, um, he came to be seen as a very intolerant, Uh, theocratic ruler, so very much out of line with Enlightenment ideals. And so the perspective of his many, many victims, uh, the different groups that he uh, targeted with um, legislation for discrimination, harassment, and in some cases the the death penalty, uh, came more and more to the fore. He was never really much of a charismatic figure to begin with. So he couldn't really fall back on that uh, to provide enduring appeal. In the 19th century, even German nationalism turned against him because he sent these multi-ethnic armies from the east to uh, destroy at least two Germanic warrior peoples, the Vandals and the Ostrogoths. Then uh, there were novels, and in the 20th century, these were turned into movies like the, the Battle for Rome, which depicted this this scheming and corrupt oriental despot. And then in the later 20th century, Justinian is often blamed in history books as causing the fall of the Roman Empire in some ways, uh, either by destroying the regimes of the Vandals and the Goths in Italy and North Africa, which seemed to be heading in a kind of Roman direction, kind of that they had the prospect of recreating um, and sort of reestablishing Roman civilization in those two provinces that his armies and the wars that he instigated destroyed, and also by weakening the East, uh, by drawing armies away from there and sending them to his uh, imperial ventures in the West. 
So Justinian remains a very polarizing figure where all of these problems are, of course, offset by his magnificent building program. Hagia Sophia is always tied to his name, the codification of Roman law, and what appears to be a fairly flourishing literary scene uh, during his reign, uh, even though he doesn't seem to have done too much to promote it, the case remains that we have many more texts from the 6th century than we do from the one before it and the one after it, among which are many of his laws uh, that themselves were very important in the overall evolution of Roman law as a system. And we're not all bad, uh, whatever Procopius would have us believe. So it is, and it remains very difficult to form a final coherent opinion uh, about Justinian. It, it is a very difficult project, uh, you know, one that I've grappled with too, and I know that there are many different ways in which you can go about it. And so I was very happy to see uh, that Peter Saris, a professor of history at the University of Cambridge, uh, did just that in a book that has just come out, uh, which is a biography of Justinian called Justinian, Emperor, Soldier, Saint. And Peter is one of our leading scholars of the 6th century, and I would like in particular to note that he has produced translations of very important texts, including uh, The Secret History. I think his and my translation are the sort of two rival options that you have out there, but also most recently... Um, an edition with introduction and translation and notes um, of the um, novels of Justinian. These are the laws that Justinian issued after the uh, codification uh, of the laws in 534. Uh, That is a two-volume set, and it's very difficult to grapple with these texts. Um, I I know firsthand. Peter has also written some excellent surveys uh, of this period of a book, Empires of Faith, that I particularly love, covers the years from 500 to 700, in addition to uh, close focus studies of economic uh, matters and politics um, in the 6th century. So he's one of our leading scholars in this field. I was very happy to have him on this podcast to talk about Justinian as we all try to find uh, an alternative model for understanding this emperor than the one uh, that Procopius has kind of trapped us in. So here, then, is my conversation with Peter Saris. Thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting uh, these episodes on their uh, podcast. So I hope you enjoy this. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Anthony, thanks for the invitation. Delighted to be here. We're here to talk about that other Peter. Petrus Sabatius, he's ready for us. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book on him? Well, I've been thinking and working on Justinian really pretty much uh, all my academic career. I I first encountered him uh, in my first year as a history student in Oxford, and I was sent uh, sent an essay on him by uh, uh, my old tutor, Patrick Wormold. Uh, It was a very Gibbonian question. It was, did Justinian ruin the empire he set out to restore? And I think in many ways, I've been spending much of the subsequent 30 years or so sort of wrestling with that from different directions. So as an undergrad, I'd look to Justinian primarily uh, in a, a military context, looking at relations with the great superpower rival, the Sasanian Empire of Persia, uh, then looking at the impact of his aggressive foreign policy on the successor states of the early medieval 
Western Mediterranean. And, it, and I think it's important my approach to Justinian is by virtue of my background as a medievalist. I began life as a medievalist mm. who did East. As a graduate student, my focus then shifted to Justinian's domestic agenda and his attempt to overhaul the Roman state. And, and as you know, I did that by trying to contextualize his reign socially and economically. That brought me into contact with his legislation, and particularly the legislation after his codification of Roman law, the novels. And through that, I then began to look at Justinian from a more legal perspective. Uh, and then finally, in recent years, because my graduate students of my own have been more religious in terms of their interests than I have generally been, I've started to appreciate the emperor more from a doctrinal perspective. So over the course of the past 30 years, I've been sort of looking at him pretty consistently, but from different perspectives. And it occurred to me that with the, you know, the 1500th anniversary of his accession to power coming up in 2027, mm. with the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the, or supposed discovery of the secret history of Procopius and the Vatican archives, the time was sort of ripe to step back and see what I thought uh, of his reign as a whole. And then sort of circumstances finally pushed me in that direction. And that for a while I'd been... Um, being badgered by a literary agent who wanted me to write a, a book addressed to the general public, a trade book. He liked my very short introduction to Byzantium and thought I could write something longer uh, of a more public-facing sort. And it struck me that the, the obvious topic, the most sellable topic, would be a biography of Justinian. And then COVID struck. And I had a long period of sabbatical leave owed to me but all the university research libraries closed and I needed to find a project I could basically write off the back of my own resources and my own thoughts. And at that mm. point, I thought of you when I thought of Justinian, so I cracked on with it. Now, over the course of writing the book, in crucial respects, my view changed, but it was that combination of long-term interests and then the final push really given by COVID, lockdown, and the need to write something. Yeah, I imagine that COVID would have made Justinian an all the more timely topic. For well, people kept on, yeah, and people kept on contacting me for sort of, uh, you know, short pieces uh, uh, talking about pandemics in a historical context off the back of Justinian, and yeah. that again sort of focused the mind rather more. So you had to, did you have to change the way you wrote for a trade book? Because let me just say that, I mean, you're a wonderful writer, and especially your book, The Empires of Faith, is just beautifully written, and I think should be accessible to anyone interested in that period. But did you feel that you had to make adjustments to the way you presented the material for a trade book? Uh, yeah, I found it uh, fantastic. I was on a fantastically useful learning curve, uh, working with um, commercial editors and commercial publishers in that, I mean, in work like Empires of Faith, my prose style is very informed by the way in which I lecture. Yeah, one reason why that book was relatively straightforward to write is that I, I lecture, I've always lectured very heavily and very extensively in that period. And so my prose style mm. there is off uh, the natural rhythm of teaching. For this book, they were very keen for me to, they, you know, they, they alerted me to where I sometimes adopt rather too academic a style that my students can get, but the general audience maybe mm. can't. They were very keen for me to try to identify rather more um, uh, episodes, vignettes, sites that could help reach out to the imagination of a, a general uh, a reader. And the crucial thing I learned in particular, which I would recommend to any uh, academic historian out there, is that if as an academic writer, you think your, your chapter is just the right length, divide it into two. 
I suddenly realized that all my chapters were far too long and that actually when they made me subdivide them, it worked much better. Mm. So I learned a huge amount from them. Okay. Yeah. And you start off with a kind of vignette or a personal travel. And I wanted to ask you about this. How much physical travel lies behind the writing of this book, whether travel that you did before COVID or after, because Justinian very famously didn't leave the palace much. Mm. Um, but were there places outside of Istanbul that gave you some insight into him? Yes, there, there, there were two aspects to this. The first, uh, there was no travel undertaken specifically to research the book, although it was written largely through travel in that once again, because of lockdown, I realized if I just stayed at home trying to write, I would probably just spend most of my time doing housework. Now my house is filthy, it could do with the housework, but I knew I wouldn't get much written. So I initially, the first chapter I wrote, I took myself to an empty English seaside resort on the Norfolk coast, just to get writing somewhere else. And then the British government started to allow travel to places with low COVID rates, including several of the Greek islands. And so about half of the book was really written by me. I would get home, I would get a suitcase of clothes, a suitcase of books, see which Greek islands you could go to, where of course there was no tourist trade, so the hotels were fantastically cheap. I'd go, so I went to I went to Zakynthos, I wrote three chapters there. I came back, changed the books, changed the clothes, went to Rhodes, went to Simi. And then as COVID lifted, I, I finished the book in Athens. So, so I found that getting away was very conducive. So, so that helped just in terms of being away, and you know, I, I find being I find solitude helps the writing process. You need to be slightly bored, but you also need just a bit of stimulus. And having historical sites and Greek being spoken gives one a lot of stimulus. So, as it were, there was the travel forced by COVID, and those were the circumstances I wrote in. But then my understanding, I, I'm a great believer in travel feeding the historical imagination and helping one to situate a reign. And there were a series of visits that have been fundamental to how I think of Justinian's uh, reign. Firstly, of course, Istanbul, uh, visiting the Byzantine monuments of Constantinople, which I first did as a grad student with Cyril Mango back in the 90s. And that was an extraordinary wow. uh, experience, of course, uh, with Mango having access to everything, as it were. Uh, uh, then North Africa in the 90s, visiting Tunis and the, some of the Byzantine military sites there and try and get a sense of what it meant for Justinian's armies to, you know, what does it mean when Belisarius conquers this terrain? To what extent is this terrain ever really pinned down? That was very useful to me. Uh, travels to Jordan and Syria, also very useful, particularly visiting uh, Mardaba in, uh, in Jordan and seeing the Mardaba map setting out uh, this, this 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 vision of the Holy Land as it was being remonumentalized by Justinian with the building of the Nea Church in Jerusalem, which is visible on that map, and the, and as a, 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 a being a, repli- a, a a sign and a replica of the lively uh, pilgrimage trade, and then crucially, really, uh, I went a few years ago to Serbia. And I was fantastically fortunate to be taken to the site of Justiniana Prima and shown around it by the Serbian archaeologists who devoted a a lifetime to studying and elucidating Mm. that site. And that site really did, I think, bring home to me a a, a crucial sense of the regime. It allowed one to place Justinian's kindred, the clan, in their native landscape, uh, in the broader archaeological and military history of that landscape. And the site itself is fascinating because it is in many ways, it's very unlike many other 
uh, Byzantine cities it, or, or late Roman cities or Eastern Roman cities. It focuses not on a center of civic authority or power or a gubernatorial residence, but very much on an ecclesiastical center. It's dominated by an entirely ecclesiastical uh, 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 complex on the Acropolis of the site. It has a very heavily fortified uh, character to it as well. And I think as it were, the way in which it marries the the strongly religious fixations of Justinian's regime with the emperor's military preoccupations as well, as I really brought home at that site. And that, I think, gave me a, a, a further stimulus to trying to understand this, this, this reign to the extent that I managed to in the end. Yeah, no, you do bring out these sites um, in the book and with some vividness, because um, I was thinking it's more interesting, probably, and certainly more feasible to write a book in the footsteps of Belisarius than the footsteps of Justinian. <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, but absolutely. those two men are kind of intertwined so much that you, you can't pull them apart. Um, mm. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Justinian in general, because I don't think we can go through everything that's in the book. It is a biography, mm. so there's lots of things going on. Uh, maybe we could just gossip about the man a little bit. I just wanted to get your impression of how he uh, thought and how he operated. And specifically, I just want to start with his ambitions, mm. because... He certainly had some pretty grand ambitions, and we're fortunate also to have more documentation from his reign, both textual and archaeological, than, I mean, combined probably from any other emperor? That's possible. Um, yeah, so twice. what do you think he was up to? Um, this is not a run-of-the-mill emperor. He had the intention of kind of reshaping the world in you know, the image that he thought it should bear, and... Anyway, just tell us a little bit about his ambitions. Why did they tend toward this sort of grandiose? What was he trying to accomplish? Yeah, one of the interesting features, I think, that I think because often Justinian's sort of religious policy is studied by theologians and his legal policies or his laws are studied by lawyers and the military history is studied by military, you know, military mm. texts are studied by military stores, we get a very fragmented view of the regime and its priorities and the emperor's voice. I think mm -hmm. the emperor's voice comes across much more clearly, and his preoccupations come across much more clearly than we sometimes think. But I, I think in, in terms of how he would have understood himself in Roman history and how he related to other emperors, uh, one gets a very strong sense, and particularly from his legislation. I think this feeds into sort of the grandiose scale, this conveys the grandiose scale of his ambitions, that the two emperors with whom he really sees eye to eye and with whom he sort of locked in an emulative and perhaps competitive relationship are Constantine, who of course had adopted Christianity and founded Constantinople, and the early fifth century emperor Theodosius II, who of course had made a, a vital contribution in terms of the incipient codification of Roman law, and also of course investing in the defense of the capital mm. itself. And those are the two figures that most often crop up in the emperor's laws, and I think in his publicly represented uh, thinking. I think the, the grandiose nature of his ambitions were the result really of a combination and a fascinating combination of personality and circumstance. Uh, in terms of personality, uh, he has, I think, an aspiration to dominate and surpass, perhaps rooted to some extent in a measure of insecurity resulting from hostility towards him and his uncle and the kindred, so his uncle, the Emperor Justin uh, I, uh, hostility and suspicion from on the part of more blue-blooded or aristocratic elements in political society in 6th century Constantinople, who were always hovering there and conspiring uh, against him. 
uh, although Justin I had risen, of course, to the acme of political power, he was very low born. And Justinian is still coming from a, uh, a, a, a rather war torn and insecure part of the Roman world when he is sent to be raised by his uncle in Constantinople. He also clearly comes to power fascinated with religion and fascinated by law. So the accession of Justinian marks a remarkable explosion of activism and creativity in each of these two spheres, which go to the heart of sixth century politics and so oblige him to operate in on a, in, on a stage that is then automatically uh, expansive and grandiose. And crucially, I think the religious issues and personality issues combine in his own intense sense of providential mission which again comes across very clearly across the range of sources. But mm. I think then also the personality aspects. Then I think broader circumstances oblige or encourage Justinian to think and to act on a grandiose scale. Crucially, the early sixth century has seen the revival of warfare with the Sasanians to the east on a massive scale. Uh, and Justinian inherits that situation. And so he's already having to operate across a series of geographical contours to the east, locking him in conflict with the Persians from the northern reaches of the Caucasus down to southern Arabia. And I also think that in Constantinople, when he comes to power, there is a profound sense of anxiety on the part of certain factions, including factions linked to his own family, associated with the realisation that Roman power to the West is no more, and that there are those agitating for an imperial response. And circumstances will enable Justinian to respond through launching his Western campaigns. So that I think that there are, but there's both the obligation to operate on a grand scale and then the opportunity to. And lastly, then, of course, in Constantinople itself, he's obliged to build on a grandiose and vast scale by virtue of the extraordinary extent of destruction caused mm. in his capital by the Nica riots of 532. Although there, too, I think his dominating personality leads him to build in a particularly grandiose and dominating fashion, epitomized not just by Hagia Sophia, but also, of course, by the great equestrian statue of him, the two great monuments that would dominate the skyline of the medieval city. Yeah, that statue actually I take to be emblematic of his mm. whole approach. Um, and it doesn't often get put in the front line of his achievements, like a Sophia or the codification or the wars. But it, it's interesting that, in a sense, his column cuts in front of the line of imperial columns that marched all across the main boulevards of the city. So it, it, before Const um, before Justinian, there was Constantine, and then behind him, Theodosius I, and then behind him, Arcadius, and then further, further away was Martian. And Justinian just comes and builds his column right at the front of the line next to Hagia Sophia, in a place where any subsequent emperor, whether in the palace or the hippodrome, would have to look out onto Theodosius in the skyline. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's remarkable. I, I, mean, I think we're fantastically lucky to have had Available. I was certainly very lucky to have available to me the wonderful study of that monument by Eleanor Burke that came yeah. out while I was writing the book, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Yes. And just a few weeks ago, I was translating Grigoras. This is from the 14th century. And he was fortunate enough to be able to climb up the scaffold that they put around the column and the statue uh, to repair it. And he took measurements of the statue wow. and he recorded them in his histories. It's really fascinating if you know what a cubit is. But anyway, Um <laughs> So let's um, let's talk about Justinian and his working habits, because this is something that fascinates me. That is, if I could get a picture of the day in the life of Justinian, that would that would clear up so much about how he actually operated as a ruler. 
So how do you think he managed to accomplish so much without really leaving the palace very much? Like, How do you picture his work habits? Well, uh, once again, I think, I think it's important that both pro and anti-regime literature agree that this man is a is a workaholic, yeah. obsessed with minutiae of detail, and who exhausts those around him. Yeah, and so I think this 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 man of sort of uh, uh, almost unnatural uh, ability to just keep on working, uh, uh, I think that really does stand out. Um, uh, you know, it's not always. For the good, uh, the, a person who had a similar lack of sleeping habits was uh, in, in this country where I'm sitting at the moment was Margaret Thatcher, who used to just sleep about three hours a night. Now, I think that this this this, this uh, obsession with the palace and this failure to leave the palace until very late in his reign, when I think he's really largely involved in sort of convalescent trips, you know, he's learning a lesson. Both Justinian and Justin the First, as guardsmen, realize that the person who controls the palace controls the empire. So, you know, had Justinian fled the palace during the Nica riots in 532, that would be it. There were always opponents circling in the capital. He can't afford to leave the palace complex behind and is determined to, uh, 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 insofar as he can, surround himself there with allies and kindred uh, and those who will facilitate him in his work. Now, of course, he realises that, that the delivery of his agenda and his policies requires him to delegate power. It requires him to allow high-ranking officials of courts to issue judgments and hear appeals in his place. He has to try to stop the workings of government in the palace getting clogged up by a surfeit of provincial litigants and petitioners. Uh, and he knows that this involves delegating more appeal court hearings, both within the palace, within the city, and then to provincial governors. And uh, he will legislate on all these uh, spheres. But he clearly has enormous personal difficulty letting go and he has enormous personal difficulty trusting people not to subvert his regime by abusing that delegated authority. Mm. And Justin and his regime, I don't think, ever really managed to resolve that tension uh, resulting from his urge to uh, micromanage. When the late Tony Honoré compared Justinian to Stalin, I think it's that obsession with the minutiae in particular mm. that he was looking at. Now, I think throughout his reign, the partial solution to this tension is to find men he can delegate uh, uh, to whose ability he respects and whose instincts he trusts and chime with his own. And here I think his eye for talent is crucial for the relatively smooth operation of this regime for much of its history. Hence the way in which he talent spots John the, John the Cappadocian, who plays such a crucial role in his domestic agenda, the way in which he talent spots Tribonian, to whom he delegates so much of the codification project, and of course the way in which he talent spots Belisarius, to whom he has to delegate so much authority in the field and on the ground. Now, of course, interestingly, this doesn't always work. Uh, and as a, a graduate student of mine uh, uh, argued, and I've got it coming out in the forthcoming monograph, in the early 530s, for example, Justinian delegates negotiations with religious dissidents, with the Severan party, the anti-Chalcedonian party, headed by Severus of Antioch, to the Patriarch of Constantinople and Themis. Hmm. Now, largely due to the presence in Constantinople of the Pope, Agapetus, at this time, who's been sent there to try to stop Justinian uh, intervening in Italy, this almost goes very badly wrong. Uh, and as my, my, my student points out, from that point on, Justinian insists in conducting all further such theological negotiations in person. So there he's, there's a classic moment where delegations almost let, let everything veer off course, and he never makes that mistake again. 
I think then beyond the world of the court, he attempts to ensure the delegation of power to provincial governors becomes more effective by, of course, increasing their rates of pay, trying to render them less prone, uh, prone to aristocratic uh, patronage and bribes, and by attempting to forge a new cadre of imperial officials ideologically committed to the regime, trained in Justinianic law, and bound by personal oaths of loyalty to both Justinian and Theodora, which we find in the legislation. So, you know, he, he, he knows he has to delegate he has enormous difficulty doing so, and that tension's always there at the heart of the regime and the heart of the politics of the era, I think. I find his delegation of authority one of the most fascinating things about him because, as you said, he has an eye for talent, and he seems to either not care that these men are of low birth or you know, from obscure backgrounds. And by the way, this also goes for his wife, a, a, mm -hmm. a, a stunning decision, uh, you know, for anyone with political aspirations, as he did in the 520s. But it's possible that that may have been a feature, not a bug. In other words, these capable, talented men were also not viable contenders for the throne, with the possible exception of Belisarius, who's the one who keeps being recalled to con confirm his loyalty. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that that, Belis that Procopius is always very clear that all that Belisarius has ever promised is that he won't make a grab for the throne while Justinian is alive. Right. It, it, uh, he keeps his options over for the open for the future, and that's yeah. significant. Also, with Theodora, again, I think I mean this is where I think the personality comes across. Uh, one thing I, I I talk about in the book is I do think there is actually I mean there's probably an element of calculation there, but I think there's also actually a very strong romantic streak to the men of this family as it were, that both Justinian and his uncle Justin have mm. clearly married primarily for affection rather than out of political design. So Justin could have got himself a very posh bride uh, uh, through his connections at yes. court. Instead, he marries this rather splendid ex-slave girl, who I think is one of the more compelling characters operating in the world of early 6th century Constantinople. Yes, who, who was literally renamed Euphemia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, at the start of the book, you say that Justinian remains our contemporary. So I wanted to ask you what you mean by that. And just to remind you that you say this right after mentioning this perplexing combination of charitable and cruel traits that he exhibits. Yeah, I always think it's important, and I try to do this with my students, to, to convey to them that the past is a, is a foreign land, but it's a foreign land populated by human beings whose predicaments and struggles we can still relate to, and who I think are worthy of our empathy. And I think that Justinian and his contemporaries and his many subjects are confront confronted by circumstances that are in certain crucial respects familiar to us today, be they pandemics, climate change, uh, apocalyptic or existential angst, uh, and culture wars. I think that the age of Justinian, as with our own age, alerts one in particular, I think, to, and it's a great theme of Procopius, so I think he's reflecting something genuine, alerts one to the sort of destructive impact on mankind of the overweening ambitions of the mighty, which is very much part of the human predicament. Mm. Uh, I was very alert to this in the final stages of the writing process when the invasion of Ukraine uh, uh, began. Uh, but above all, I think what I mean is that I think Justinian made a uh, more than is normally acknowledged, a fundamental contribution, not only to the development of East Roman civilization and the East Roman state, but also the formation of Christendom more generally, the Islamic world, and then the modern societies that have emerged from these cultural 
formations. Now, in particular, and there's a slightly more complex aspect to that than just saying, oh, he, he's, he has a legacy. Um, I was very influenced as a medievalist uh, by the works of scholars in the late 80s and 90s who were delineating the, the late medieval period as an era which witnessed the emergence of what they termed the persecutory state or a persecuting society mm. in which men and women were subject to state-encouraged persecution by virtue of religious, sexual or other characteristics, a legacy upon which then the modern state would build, uh, as we see you know, discussed by uh, Foucault and his school thereafter. Now, I think these fund these persecuting societies, however, were fundamentally shaped and inspired by the legacy and framework of Justinianic Roman law and Justinian's own unprecedented persecution of such groups, which I think then hardwires that persecutory mindset into his legal legacy, which then takes on a new life in the Middle Ages and has a very sharp modern legacy as well. Yeah, let's talk about some of these groups, because he made the empire a much, much more dangerous place for certain groups, and he encoded their persecution in, in law. Uh, so why don't you tell us, broadly speaking, what are these categories of people that he targeted? Yeah, so his Christian agenda leads him to be un, you know, to unprecedented acts of charity towards groups that Roman law had normally uh, overlooked, such as the handicapped, uh, uh, vulnerable children, low-class women and so on, but also unprecedented acts of, uh, of cruelty uh, to those whom Justinian deems as outsiders in what he describes in an important law uh, dating from 537 as his orthodox republic, with this mm. unprecedented crackdown on the legal rights and social status of non-orthodox Christians, uh, pagans, heretics, Samaritans and Jews, as well, importantly, as those deemed guilty of sexual immorality, both adultery and homosexual activity. Now, I'll take the religious uh, minorities first, if I may. Uh, first, uh, we have well, we have legislation issued jointly with his uncle, Justin I, which had banned all such groups, of course, from holding office in the Roman state and from teaching. But during Justinian's sole reign, he complains in particular that the previous legislation of Christian emperors against pagans, heretics, and others had simply been far too haphazard and only laxly applied. He's always complaining of the indolence of his predecessors, constant motif, and he's determined to tighten the persecutory knot. Now, his most intense uh, religious ire is initially targeted at pagans. Uh, uh, those who refuse to go into exile or convert are to be killed. Uh, with respect to Jews, crucially, I think the degree of anti-Semitism of Justinianic legislation has often been understated. Mm. With respect to Jews, he crucially drops the provision in Roman law that had hitherto granted Judaism the status of a licit sect or permitted religion. And he crucially attempts to sow domestic discord within the families of nonconformist religious groups by giving preferential rights of inheritance to Orthodox Christian heirs and by limiting, severely curtailing, the ability of non-Orthodox property owners, primarily members of the upper classes, to make a will under Roman law. This would have been regarded as deeply humiliating in Roman political culture. Part of this humiliation 
He also allows state officials to beat and assault upper-class Jews, Samaritans, and heretics. Samaritan places of worship are destroyed, as too in the occupied territories in Africa are Jewish synagogues. Uh, and interestingly, we have church officials known as um, church defenders who are now increasingly empowered to cross-examine the laity as well as priests to ascertain their degree of religious conformity. And I think this comes across very nicely in a law on provincial administration in 535, where we have a purely passing reference to heretic hunting as if it's now an entirely standard feature mm. of life. So that's as it were the religious, the crackdown on the religious minorities. In terms of sexual morality, uh, he is interestingly the first Roman emperor to institute what appears to be a blanket ban on male homosexuality and gay men in the capital are castrated and paraded around its streets. Uh, previous Roman emperors on my reading of the law had only really cracked down on sexually passive male prostitutes and in particular transvestite male prostitutes who are a, a, a concern for them. He also appears to introduce the death penalty for adultery. We have legislation on rape and he makes divorce by mutual consent almost impossible. We also have a crackdown on the flesh trade, targeting people, traffickers and pimps, probably informed by Theodora's uh, own yeah. uh, past. So why does he do this? Uh, I think he's informed by an intense sense of Christian piety, and in particular is more inclined than previous emperors had been to respond to the religious demands and moral agenda of the patristic authors and the more hardline elements of the church leadership, who, of course, will be encouraging him to persecute harder, faster and more comprehensively. Uh, I think it's interesting that his legislation, for example, is characterised by an unusual degree of intrusion of biblical quotations and patristic allusions and motifs reflected there. I think the, the way in which the, those texts and those authors are shaping his mind and his approach. Again, the, the viciously anti-Semitic nature of much patristic literature is something that, uh, as Nicholas de Lange has emphasised, it's too easy for the Byzantinists to overlook. Yeah. He is, I think, determined to press ahead with the more full-blown Christianization of Roman state and society initiated by Constantine, but hampered by the inertia of his successors. But I think also there is a contemporary context to this beyond personal piety, and it's twofold. Uh, firstly, the emperor believes that the empire cannot thrive and the emperor will never be successful in his other spheres of activity without divine favor. And such divine favor depends upon the moral and religious catharsis of the Roman state. I also think Justinian's sense of providential mission is shaping this and is in, it's itself informed and shaped by the profound apocalyptic sensibilities that are in the air and felt by some in Constantinople in the early 6th century, and which will then again be intensified by climate change and plague. And I think Justinian in his uh, his punishment, as it were, of his population, his training of them, believes that he's helping to prepare his subjects for judgment, and he is determined to ensure that the imperial church is an effective agent of salvation. Hence, in his very early laws, we see great emphasis on improving the moral character and personal conduct of priests, bishops and monks, on whose prayers he believes the salvation of the Commonwealth will uh, ultimately depend. Yeah, it is troubling when you see in his laws the way he combines these very idealistic and charitable principles with the kinds of realities that they led to when applied to populations that were disfavored by him. Um, and it's you know even more difficult to reckon with this when he actually uses those same principles sometimes 
to benefit certain groups who ancient historians long believed should have gotten a break at some point. He definitely uh, provides um, advantages to uh, women in inheritance and, and lower class women too, removing some of the stigmas and, and liabilities that they faced. Um, and I think even in his, um, the way he reorganized the, the Armenian provinces after he um, annexed them essentially was almost like a, um, like a, he makes it seem like this is some sort of feminist reorganization that the Armenian aristocracy is not giving enough in their inheritance to their daughters and no, 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 inheritances have to, to you know. And mm -hmm. so, which is probably also politically advantageous to him to break up the estates of these Armenian aristocrats, but he frames it as what we might call a kind of feminist measure. Yeah, and he, uh, and in particular, I think it's interesting that the concern for those suffering from physical uh, impediment and handicap emerges yeah. for the, uh, an issue of concern. I think, from what I've been able to work out, for the first time in in Roman imperial legislation, uh, yes, and this is the this is what I, I term the, the sort of the light and the shade of the regime that I think it's important that historians get to grips with. It's all too easy sometimes to make late antiquity into uh, a very comfortable, uh, uh, an upbeat world. Uh, I think we could we need to keep the, the 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 pain and the misery there as well as the cultural efflorescence and intellectual excitement of the period. Yeah, this is what bothers me in the trajectory of late antiquity is that you see that as certain distinctions and hierarchies inherited from the Roman past are beginning to fade in importance. For example, the fact that you have people like Justinian and Theodora in the positions that that they occupy, um, where a lot of these social distinctions are, are becoming less relevant. At the same time, they're creating all of these new social distinctions like based on religion and, 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 and sexual behavior and so forth that make this again a kind of very stratified society with people who are in and out. And anyway, it, it just creates a new set of uh, hierarchies for the, for the next millennium. Indeed, uh, it's, it's, both, it's, it's at once most more culturally integrative, whilst also exclusive at the same time. And it's, it's yeah. how one yeah. confirms that balance is crucial. I yeah. Think. I mean, so the distinctions between, you know, Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens has disappeared, but now we're creating new ones between Orthodox and non-Orthodox. And Sweet. anyway, yeah. you wish they would settle on some sort of point, but anyway. Um, so some interesting hypothetical questions here. If you could interview Justinian and 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 get an honest answer, you probably would. What would you ask him, and why that? I would ask him uh, how and how he got together with Theodora and married her. Hmm. I, I would ask him that because I think you know, obviously, she's clearly absolutely crucial to his reign. And in, uh, is a fascinating person in her own right. And I really you know, can't emphasize enough, and I try to emphasize it in the book, that during her lifetime, this was effectively a period of, uh, of joint rule. Uh, and I think also the Justinian's answer about how he met her, was drawn to her and married her, would also tell us a great deal, not only about her, but also about him. How do you imagine he met her? Well, I think well the point of contact uh, is obviously the 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 the, the common uh, interest the, the the points of contact in the the blue faction and the networks associated mm. with it. I think that here is this uh, 
middle-aged man who is a bit who is deep who's deeply pious and is i think drawn to the story of this clearly very beautiful woman who has had a who has had a morally disreputable past and is claiming to have been redeemed mm. uh, i mean although I, I don't entirely give credit to the the claim in the source of which are largely reliant on this, John Nikiu, that she uh, received religious instruction when passing through Alexandria. I think that the the idea, you know, I don't think that her own interest in religion is purely um, a result of machination. I think that that is also, no reason to doubt that that is also genuine uh, and that her sense of religiosity is the result of a, a, a very traumatic past and i say this is a woman who has discovered religion in life and i think that alongside her beauty is likely to be the key to their relationship yes interesting okay a similar question given that we do have extensive documentation from the rain so many sources and so many different genres and languages but if you could have one source or document from the rain that we do not have what would that be I think if one was allowed a sort of a generous uh, answer to that, initially, I'll give you a sort of a maximalist option and a minimalist option. The maximalist would be, you know, given we now have the technology uh, to read the burnt remnants of carbonized papyri as they're found at archaeological sites, it would be amazing to discover and then decipher the archive of almost any provincial governor across the years of the 530s to the 550s to get a really concentrated view of how Justinian's agenda was articulated and mm. felt on the ground. A more minimalist answer would be, I would like, I'd love to get hold of the missing chapter on the plague, which the sixth century uh, scholar and bureaucrat, very familiar to you, John Lydus included in the original of his fascinating treatise, uh, the De Magistratibus, he studied the magistracies uh, of the mm. Roman state. Uh, for the audience, you know, John was based in Constantinople, worked in the offices of the Praetorian Prefecture, the great administrative uh, epicenter of the empire. And so he's likely to have had access to really good material on the, the devastating plague which reached Constantinople in 542, uh, and which we're told even struck Justinian before he recovered. Could I tell you my answer? And it's it's a question that I ask myself of every emperor, and the answer is always the same. I would like to have at least one year's worth of their budget. Oh yeah, well that, 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 that's interesting. Yes, indeed, the but yes, yes, yes. It, that, yeah. Whatever form such a document might take, and it might not be one document. It obviously wasn't. Yeah, we we have a reference so, in the edict on Egypt to this yes. sort of. This, this public codex in which clearly the income and expenditure of the Praetorium, uh, the, the Augustal Prefect of Alexandria uh, has. And yeah, and the, I, I, yes, I, I would love to have the emperor's own yeah. uh, uh, public codex or, or fiscal codex. Yes, uh, for the big history that I wrote, I, I ended up getting into the numbers enough, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cost of this, the revenues from there, so-and-so, that... I got so close that I felt if we had something like that, it would allow us to tie the numbers together and make sense of them. Because right now we're just guessing about most of them. Yeah. Yes. There be... used to be a children's TV program in the UK called Think of a Number. And sometimes in the 90s, when I was sort of reading and, re uh, and reviewing literature on 
the Byzantine military budget and things. I, the, the, the name of that programme would just uh, occur to me because I think actually so much of these were guesstimates. But uh, yeah, I think, as you say, there, there is the wherewithal actually to cut, to get much closer and much more precise as we work with this material. Mm-hmm. So there may be more, more papyri. Yeah. Um, I mean, knows. there's always one such document would do so much uh, for us, just to enable us to rule out conjectures that we've been working with or give us a a range of the plausible. Anyway, I'd love to it, have that. It may be in a biscuit tin in the Ashmolean, a papyrus, which Strategius Apion took back with him from Constantinople. Yes. Uh, you need. I'm just waiting for someone to, uh, to, to discover and transcribe it. Yes, it's totally not the answer that I would have given a few years ago or like a decade ago, which would have probably been, I want Procopius's unwritten church history. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Justinian does all this. He says all this. He has all these ambitions. And then toward the end of the reign, things go sideways a little bit. Some of the wheels come off. Uh, Then you have a chapter or section, I can't remember, which you call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Can you tell us what those were? Yeah, so Christian authors in the Middle Ages often allude to uh, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, referred to in the Bible, in the book of the apocalypse, uh, who were given the power to scourge mankind with the horrors of warfare, famine, and disease. And, and I use these to discuss the concatenation of challenges which Justinian and his empire began to face from the mid-530s, and especially from the early 540s, uh, which I think you know, seriously challenged the resilience of the Roman state, and um, which I think pushed Justinian and his regime to their limit. And these are uh, climate change, which I think is you know dis- highly disruptive of, of harvest, leading to famines around the Mediterranean in this period. And it's most severe, I think, from the East Roman perspective, from the mid-530s through to the mid-540s. I'm slightly suspicious in a Mediterranean context of talk of a late antique Little Ice Age. I think we're talking about one shorter period of very intense shock, but that's causing shock and disruption at a crucial moment in terms of Justinian's military and domestic agenda. And then the bubonic plague, which first strikes in 541 in the Mediterranean before spreading like wildfire between its main uh, mm. urban centers. And then alongside that, the simultaneous warfare to east and west, which will see major Roman reversals in both Italy and Syria, epitomized in the case of Syria with the destruction of Antioch. Now, as I said, I think Justinian's regime is almost knocked off kilter by these uh, challenges which are then compounded in the emperor's mind and psyche by the loss of his wife with the death of Theodora in 548. Uh, now, I think you know, it's, it's sometimes a truism or it's, it's becoming a feature of the historiography to sort of divide Justinian's reign into two halves, the sort of years of ambition before the arrival of the plague and then the grim slog for survival that supposedly characterised the period from the advent of the plague onwards. I think there's a lot in that, but I think it's a bit, it needs a bit of nuance. And I think for me, the crucial, I think the crucial thing is, first of all, not to prioritise any one of those changed in circumstance, changes in circumstance or any one of those uh, uh, dramatic episodes or events. Rather, I think it's the it's the combined effect of these challenges that is the main problem rather than any one of them, which is why I like to talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse rather than signalling out any one on his, on his mount, as it were. But I think it's also important to bear in mind, and I think uh, uh, people tend to sort of sometimes drift off to a sort of, they sort of go straight really from the 540s to Justinian's death often. 
Uh, and I think it's very important to appreciate the extent to which by the early 550s, Justinian and his regime had recovered something of their composure and the extent to which we see a series of new and really quite significant endeavours in the 550s, such as the Spanish campaign, the, ex the extension of Roman control, not just over Italy and Africa, which his armies have uh, entered in the 530s, but now southern Spain as well with the intervention there in the, in the, 550, in, in the 550s. What's striking about Justinian's regime in its later phase is that, and the way I put it somewhere, I don't remember where, is that he manages to tie up all the loose ends before mm. he dies. He ties up, wraps up the war in Italy. So there's peace there. Place has been ruined, but there's no active warfare going on. He makes these far-reaching and seemingly definitive treaties with the Persians to create peace in Mesopotamia and the Caucasus. He establishes a viable um, sort of it's a kind of balance of power networks along the Danube um, with all of the barbarian people there. And he kind of delivers to, and right before he dies, like 562, 563 are the last of these treaties. And then he just kind of delivers the empire at peace to his successor, whom he doesn't designate in the usual <laughs> Roman way. But even so, I think that a great deal of the resilience had been eroded during all of that, uh, the four horsemen phase. I mean, I, I think it would have been much harder to maintain that, that equilibrium that he, that he created. But I think it is important to recognize that he did wrap it all up. And I think in particular, what I find really interesting is, uh, the way in which the, 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 those final negotiations with Persia now really during the course of that warfare with the Persians in the Caucasus, uh, across the 540s and into the 550s, the Persians have had the upper hand. Mm. They're typically best Romans in the field. They're driving back the gains in the Western Caucasus that the Romans had achieved in the 520s and early 530s. But Justinian manages to achieve diplomatically what actually he's failed to achieve militarily mm. in that sphere by playing upon the sudden reconfiguration of power along Persia's frontiers caused by the emergence of the Turk Khaganate, playing upon, as Richard Payne has emphasized, Persia's deep-rooted uh, strategic and cosmological anxiety to the rise of new steppe nomadic powers, and playing upon the establishment of Turk power to uh, get the Persians to disengage from warfare with the Romans, to focus themselves on the Turks. But the price for that disengagement is they surrender Lazica, the crucial West Caucasian kingdom, to Roman control. And I think that is a really uh, striking achievement uh, late in Justinian's reign. I agree with you entirely about the Turks. In this phase of East Roman history, they're, they're an ally, a distant one, and they help the Romans do so much more, even in the 7th century. Uh, that's a whole different story. But yes, you're quite right. Uh, so final question. And this is about Justinian's place in history, more, but not, not as generally as that sounds, but specifically in East Roman history, because sometimes Justinian is taken or the death of Justinian is taken to be in some way the end of ancient Roman history. Though I suspect the reason that historians choose that date is because they want to include the corpus, the laws as part of ancient Roman culture. And so they kind of create this bubble that extends outward, includes Justinian, and they cap it off there. But sometimes mm -hmm. he's seen or taken as the beginning of, sort of, quote, Byzantine history more proper. And, well, I wanted to ask you, so why do you think that his reign is taken to be like an end 
or a beginning in these ways? And how do you, where do you situate him along this scale, if you do? Well, I think you're absolutely right on that that legal point, in particular, that because, as it were, because Justinian's law commissioners are so successful at uh, redefining and boiling down and editing the inherited body of Roman law, you know, it's almost impossible for law for legal historians to really, in any real sense, know what Roman like law is like before Justinian's commissioners get to work on it. So the law students in my university who are studying Roman law in their first term today are studying it as it leaves the hands of Justinian's law commissioners. Mm. So in order to enable themselves to use Roman law and to try to use it as a source for Roman history, Roman historians have to include Justinian. Uh, and I remember the late Tony Honore saying that Justinian just felt much more Roman to him than any later emperor because of the figure of Tribonian, who was a figure that that that, that uh, Honore and others could relate to in the context of a uh, of a world of Roman legal scholarship that we have little evidence for thereafter. Yeah. I think also the uh, regarding Justinian as the last ancient Roman emperor. Is also, I think, a very Western perspective. And I think it's because Western historians in particular tend to regard Justinian's reign as witnessing the last great effort to revive Roman power in the West and to restore the Roman Empire of old. Mm. Now, I think this is to misconstrue the nature of Justinian's project and to misconstrue where the Western reconquest stood in the emperor's list of priorities. I think Justinian's chief and most consistent interests lay in the field of law and doctrine and completing the Christianization of the Roman state. And these were the fields where his chief achievements, as well as his main focus, would lie. The Western reconquests, for me, are really largely opportunistic in nature. Hmm. Uh, likewise, the rhetoric of imperial restoration was largely propagandistic, uh, meant to, as you know, appeal to conservative sentiment within the governing classes. But as Procopius realised, Justinian was really concerned much more with transforming the Roman state, uh, constructing his orthodox republic. Now, in terms of his contribution to Byzantium or Eastern Roman world moving forward, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd put it in the following terms. For me, the and not just me, as I think pretty common definition, for me, the defining characteristics of East Roman or Byzantine civilization have always been that fusion of Roman political identity, Greek intellectual culture, and Christian faith, uh, alongside a political focus and imaginative fixation with the city of Constantinople. And I think through his religious uh, aggressive religious agenda in particular, Justinian made a fundamental defining contribution to that fusion. He also, of course, transformed the city of Constantinople itself. As I mentioned earlier, the, in respect to his equestrian statue, uh, the medieval city and its greatest monuments very much expressed his personality mm. and his vision of empire. And it was in the context of a Constantinople transformed by him that much of the subsequent history of the empire would take shape. Uh, and I think those are the respects in which he is, as it were, if one wants to have him as this uh, uh, Janus-like figure, actually I would emphasize much more uh, the, his, his, his crucial role in that process of fusion and creating the circumstances and the context in which Byzantine or East Roman history would uh, unroll 
and be propagated and shaped in the centuries ahead. That's very nicely put. Um, I, I think of two relatively smaller um, aspects of his life and work that for me kind of embody in a sort of microcosm the traje- the bigger trajectories of history. And these are the fact that he began to issue his new laws in Greek. So even though he was a Latin speaker and his main contribution to Roman law is a project that is in Latin, but after a certain point, he kind of converts the imperial legal system into Greek and sort of kind of pointing ahead to you know the millennium to come. And also this kind of pilgrimage, whatever he went on to uh, Central Asia Minor uh, late in life, to me is another kind of trajectory that just symbolic, I think, in that way of these holy sites in Asia Minor that would dominate the middle Byzantine landscape. Um, that something from, you know, um, a person from the Western Balkans, like his trajectory is kind of that east, east begins to look eastward at the end of his life when he's looking for, I think, probably healing for something. And absolutely, yes. I, I, I think that's a, that's a, a, a very uh, poignant way of putting it. Uh, and to, I think give one a sense of how this world is transformed Uh, through his lifetime and by his lifetime. Thank you, Peter. You have been a very eloquent guest when it comes to the topic of Justinian. So readers can, or the audience can uh, uh, assume from that what your book is like. So I think you've just made a very good case for it. Thank you. It's been been enormous fun. (laughs) But by the way, one more question. What is next for you? So uh, before lockdown, I was about halfway through what is going to be a very long book uh, looking at social, economic, military, and political relations between sedentary empires in Western Eurasia and nomadic states. I'm about halfway through that. It, oh, wow. it, the whole thing will be about 400,000 words. Um, so I, I, this summer, I was able to finally get back to Dumbarton Oaks and crack on with some some proper research back on on that again with the research libraries. That was the project I set aside to write this uh, this book. Um, and then I will be writing another trade book, which will be um, a, a more general uh, uh, reconsideration of East Roman civilization. Oh, so I look forward to reading those and we can have you back on when those come out. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks. Okay, Peter, take care.